Each week we look at a unit of Scripture as we have been journeying through First and Second Samuel, and we are going to do that today in the passage that was just read by Sonora, 7, 1 to 17. Before we do that, I want to do a little overview of the life of David. I want to take you back, uh, if you can remember, back to 1 Samuel 16. You don't need to turn there, just listen. Um, jog your memories. 1 Samuel 16 is where uh, David was first anointed. Uh, you might remember his, his father, Jesse, and Samuel was there, and Jesse has all of his sons. And he starts off with the son who fit the, the model of, of, of who would be most kingly of my sons. And he presents him to Samuel, and here, here he is. And Samuel says, no, that, that's not the one. Oh, okay, and they move, and they go through all the sons, and no, no, not him, not him, not him. Uh, you remember the story. I get to the end, and Samuel says, well, it, do you have another son somewhere than all these Oh, yeah, I do. You know, he's, you know, he's feeding the chickens. No, he's, 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 he's tending the sheep. It's the least likely a boy, as it were. And so they left him tending the sheep. And he was the one that God had chosen. And Samuel anointed this probably teenage boy uh, to be king. Back in 1 Samuel 16, somewhere around 1079 BC, a reminder of how old these stories are that we are reading from 3,000 years ago. If we jump forward to the passage that was just read, David has moved from this young boy to a king in 1 Samuel 7, who is in Jerusalem in his palace, settled with the Ark of the Covenant there. In many ways, things are the way they ought to be as we get to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And in my very um, unsophisticated chart, this is the rise of David's life from 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 7. These are David's decades of rise. And what I mean by rise is he has mostly lived a life loving this covenant-keeping God of Israel with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Certainly, if this was a more detailed um, chart or arrow, there were some bumps, and there were some sins, and there were some, some errors. But in general, David has done so well. And has been so close to God. We have looked at David's decades of rise from 1 Samuel 16 to today, where he and the ark are in the palace, or he's in the palace and the ark, he and the ark are in Jerusalem, rather. If we think of all of the things that have happened, if we take a step back before we get to verses 1 through 17 and look at all that's happened to this boy's life who has become king. There are some very significant things that have gone on in his life, and we have looked at these in past weeks and past months. 
And one of these was his friendship with, who was it? Jonathan. He had an incredible friendship with Jonathan until Jonathan went to be with the Lord. We read of this friendship in 1 Samuel 18. Jonathan became one in spirit with a small s. They were like-minded. They were, they, they, were, they were close. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David. This is an extraordinary friendship. It's not normal for two men or two women to make a covenant together about their friendship. But that's what happened here. There was a covenant because it says David loved him, loved Jonathan as himself. And then this extraordinary sentence where it says, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And we have to know something about ancient culture to know how extraordinary this sentence is, this last sentence on the screen. To to give you a glimpse into what ancient culture was like, it was pretty much 100% that you were going to do what your mama did if you're a woman, what your dad did if you were a man. So if your dad was the king, Jonathan's dad was the king, Saul, you would inherit the kingdom. And so Saul has a special tunic and sword and clothing and bow and arrow and belt. But he recognizes that David, this unlikely boy, has been anointed king. And so part of their friendship was surrendering what in all other realms would have been Jonathan's future. So we see this element of sacrifice and mutual agreement, being one in spirit. This is part of what is involved in David's decades of rise. This close friendship that he has with Jonathan. Now he has a friendship now that Jonathan is gone. Jonathan was killed in battle. But it's not a friendship like Jonathan. But he does have a friendship in the person of Nathan, the prophet. And we know friends are friends when they say things that we don't want to hear but that are for our good. And Nathan is in chapter 7 that to David, and many of you know the, the story that the, um, my, my, going back to my simplistic graph here, that I will have to modify that graph as we go forward. And Nathan um, speaks into David's life uh, many chapters from now. Proverbs 27.6 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. David is going to be wounded in the very best way uh, by Nathan. And this is a small wound in chapter 7. We're going to have a bigger wound later. But here, it's a small wound that corrects what David is about to do. I'm talking about all this and giving us an overview As we think about David's life and his closeness to God, we want to be close to God, and friendship is a piece of the overarching narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel as we look at David's life. 
and part of what we see in how he became who he became. In his, um, his book, Made for Friendship, uh, Drew Hunter writes this. He says, three aspects of modern culture create unique barriers to deep relationships, busyness, technology, and mobility. As we think about David's friendship with Jonathan, I think the first two, David, or the first and the third here in the, this triad, uh, David had. Uh, he was pretty busy. <laughs> he was uh, fleeing someone trying to kill him. That makes you pretty busy uh, in, in life. Um, he, he wasn't settled throughout most of his friendship with Jonathan. He was on the run. He was a fugitive, if you will. He was busy. He was mobile. He was busy. He didn't have screens in front of him. He didn't have texts and chats and instant messages and all of these things coming his way. So we have barriers to deep relationships, but so did David. And I want to suggest that the barriers he had were actually more severe, but he made time for that friendship. In that same book, uh, this man writing on friendship, he says this, friendship is for many of us one of the most important but least thought about aspects of life. Today's message obviously includes this theme of friendship. That's what I'm talking about right now. It's not the primary thing in, first, in 2 Samuel 7, but Nathan functions here as a friend to David. And David has had these decades of rise in part because of his friendship with Jonathan, primarily because of his relationship with God and the closeness of God, but he had this beautiful friendship. So all of that, um, by way of introduction, let's get to our unit of Scripture now, and let's take a look um, beginning at verses 1 through 7. 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 7. Hopefully you have your Bibles open, your devices open. I'm going to go ahead and and, uh, begin in verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest, From all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Let's pause there for a moment. I mean, this is, I mean, we can identify with this. I mean, none of us have been a king or are going to be a king, but if you were a king and God has raised you up and you're finally where you should be. Some time has elapsed, I think. The, the narrator doesn't tell us that, but from last week's passage, I think some time has elapsed. The, the, the palace has been built. Uh, the ark is in Jerusalem. And David has had time to reflect that he's in this beautiful cedar palace. And the ark, which represents the presence and power and, and infinite glory of God, is in a tent. And it's just... Yeah, this is incongruous. This this needs to be rectified. So he says this to Nathan, verse 3. Nathan replies to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. David knows the things that I've just summarized and much more about David and his life. He, He knows that David took Goliath out, that David has had this tremendous success in battle. He knows that God has been with David in extraordinary ways. So you could just see Nathan just saying, yeah, yeah, that that makes complete sense. 
that you need to build something more significant for the Ark of the Covenant that represents God's infinite power and glory than for you, the King of Israel. Yes! But actually, it was a no. Look at verse 4. So that night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. See, you get what he's saying here? That the ark represents the power, infinite glory of God. And he's saying, I, I, I've been moving around and it, it, it's okay, seems to be what he's saying. Verse 7, whenever I have moved with all the Israelites... Did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? <laughs> um, so what is being communicated in, in verses 1 through 7 to Nathan by God to be con- communicated to David is, hey, if you check the word of the Lord, I haven't asked you to build me a house. <laughs> I've asked you to rest on the Sabbath. I've asked you to do battle a certain way. I've asked you to get the ark to Jerusalem. I've asked you to carry the ark a certain way. There are certain things I've asked you to do, and this isn't one of them. So this is interesting. So David has a a good motive, a godly desire, but this isn't for him to do. Now Samuel, 2 Samuel 7 Whoever wrote this, we don't know who wrote it, doesn't tell us all of the details, but some of you know this, so why doesn't David get to build the house, or what we would say, the temple for the Ark of the Covenant? We know there are a variety of reasons. One of them we read about in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. David here, we're jumping forward in time, and this is what it says in 1 Chronicles 22. David is speaking... And David is speaking to his son, Solomon. He says, but this word of the Lord came to me, came to David. And he's speaking to Solomon. This is what the Lord said to me as he's talking to Solomon. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You, David, are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He's the dude who's going to build a house for the ark. Now, I take that to mean that it it was not a sin for David to be a warrior, to be in the military. But I take that to mean that David, like soldiers on the battlefield, did some things he should not have done, and we know that he did, on the battlefield. I take those things that he should not have done on the battlefield to be the reason that the chronicler is referring to, to why he is not the one to build the house for the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so what do we do with all this? What do we do with 1 through 7? How does this apply to the life of someone who believes in Jesus and is living in the foothills in 2023. This is where preaching gets difficult. You and I are not uh, kings of Israel. We're queens of Israel. 
We don't have an Old Testament prophet who's going to direct us. How does this passage relate to your life and my life? Well, I want to suggest when we're reading any part of the Bible, we often need to to think deeply and draw big circles. We need to think wider and, and have a bigger applicational circle than how to be a king in ancient Israel. And so one of the things, and there are many places I could go here as far as how God wants to apply this word to your life and mine, but one of the things I would say that we need God's grace, we need his help to know when not to do a good thing. This was a good thing to build this house. But David needed to know when not to do a good thing. And the word of God came to him. And the word of God can come to us sometimes when you or I have good ideas and that we should not follow through on those good ideas because there is something better. There is something else. So what's an example of this? In, in our lives, in 2023 in the foothills, what's an example of where we might, might see someone wanting to do a good thing, but they need to not do that because God's word has came to them in some way, maybe through a friend that showed them that there is a, a better route, a better way to go. So let's imagine that you have some savings and you know a friend, you're a Christian, you have some savings, you have a Christian friend who's racked up quite a bit of credit card debt. And you've made the decision, tentative decision, to, to help this person and to get rid of their debt, to gift them, to be generous. It's a good thing to do. And so before you do this, you, you run it by another Christian friend who's maybe wiser or has insight that you might not have and say, hey, this is what I'm, I'm thinking um, about doing. And this person is not an Old Testament prophet. We don't have Old Testament prophets around us. We don't have Nathans around us. But we do have friends. God, God's will is for you to have friends who know you and know the word of God and speak into your life. So what I'm trying to show you is, is we have to draw bigger circles around how to apply the word of God. And so I'm giving you a, a case scenario where a friend might use the Word of God to show someone who wants to do something good that there's actually a better course, a different course to take. And so this friend who's talking to the Christian friend who's wanting to help the Christian friend who has a credit card debt takes that friend to, uh, to Matthew chapter 25. And you're probably familiar with this parable of the talents. Let's look at it together. It says, Jesus is speaking. He says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now, just very briefly, to interpret this parable, you're probably familiar with it, but just reminding you, in this parable, there's a master uh, the master who goes on a journey. And this master in the parable represents Jesus. And the journey is Jesus' ascension to heaven and, and his return at the rapture or at the second coming, depending on your view of the end times, is when the master is going to come back. And the, so the journey represents Jesus' time away until he returns. And then these three servants 
represent believers like you and me, professing Christians, who have been given different talents, gifts, resources, spiritual gifts, money, everything in totality that we have that God has given us. We've been given it in different degrees. So those talents represent what he's given us. One, five, one, two, one, one. Let's continue in Matthew 25. So the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and he gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained, gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. His master replied to the first two individuals, the one who had the five and the two talents, he replies identically. Notice this is verse 21 and 23. They are identical verses, the same response to the first two people. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. One of the main points of this parable that the friend is sharing with the friend who's trying to help the friend is to be faithful in what God has given you. And if you are faithful with what God has given you, that there's two things that happen. One is you get increased responsibility. You're going to be in charge of many things. And a second thing that happens, your joy, your happiness grows. You share in the master's happiness when you're faithful with the talents and spiritual gifts that he's given to you. But the man who had the one talent came. The response is very different, somewhat shocking. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, the master representing Jesus, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know if you got this, but that's bad. For the one who is not a steward, of the time, the treasure, the talents, the resources, the spiritual gifts that God has given. How does this relate to my story of the friend who wants to help the friend who wants to help the friend? The friend who's helping the friend who wants to help the friend might say, you know, that is a good thing to pay the credit card debt of that person. It's beautiful. It's generous. And and actually, maybe you, you should do that. But the better thing to do would be to invest in that person's life so that they become the kind of steward of their resources that they don't make that decision. And, and then maybe later or at some point you, you, you pay off their debt. You, you do this outrageously gracious thing. That is a very gospel sort of thing to do. But there might be something better to do. That was a long way to travel. But to say this is the kind of way that if we want the Word of God to read us and change us, that we have to think as we look at the Word of God. Rather than focusing on 
the details of being a king in ancient Israel. Those are of limited value. But God wants the word of God to impact your life and my life so that we, like David, make better decisions than we would have. And that's the role that Nathan plays. So know when not to do a good thing. As is my general pattern, I need to pick up the pace now. So let's move back to our text and verse 8. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. So we're in the middle of the message of Nathan communicating the word of the Lord to David who wanted to build a house for God. Verse 8. So this is continuing what the word of the Lord is. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from, along the, and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut, you, cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed elders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now there's an important little word that I emphasized as I was reading here. I've got it circled in my Bible. Maybe you heard it if you were listening. Did you hear the word? It's the word I. Seven times. God is saying, I took you from that pasture when you weren't in the lineup to be king. I've been with you wherever you've gone, including the battle with Goliath. I've cut off all your enemies. I will make your name great. I will provide a place. I've appointed leaders. I will give you rest. God is reminding you and me here and reminding David through Nathan that we are to be God-centered people and that whatever gifts or talents or prestige or kingdom that you've been put in charge of, God gave them to you. He gave them to you. So point number two, as we want the word of God to read us, we don't want just to read it and get details and facts. We want to be changed by the word. God, help me to know that whatever gifts, whatever talents you have, you gave them to me, God. And some of you might need, if you are one of those who think far too lowly of yourself, you need to simply hear perhaps, that God has given you gifts and talents and he wants you to be faithful with them. He hasn't given you the gifts and talents that he's given to everyone else. He's given them to you, sovereignly, mysteriously. He's given them to you and he wants you to use them. And this is what is being emphasized to David 3,000 years ago, I have been the one who have done this. I brought you here. Don't forget this. And be a steward of what I've called you to do. And I haven't called you to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. 
I want to say, church, from this New Testament parable and also from 2 Samuel 7, that there's a strong correlation between believing in God and that he has given you talents and gifts, and he wants to use them to love him and to love your neighbor, that he wants to use you with the gifts and talents you have. There is a strong correlation between you believing and exercising those gifts and talents and using the resources you have and your joy. Your joy. I hope you had a week filled with joy. Biblical joy, Christian joy, is joy that is not circumstance dependent. It comes out of our relationship with Jesus and by his grace. And there is a strong correlation between believing that he's gifted us with talents and with spiritual gifts and that we have a stewardship to exercise them and our, and our joy or our happiness. Now this, this is, I think, just biblical. This is my responsibility. Some people are like, did you need to go there? I, it, so some of you are, are familiar with bell curves, right? So I, I think this really fits with the parable of the talents. Just being biblical. Some of us have been given one talent, most of us have maybe been given two or three talents. And some of us have been given five talents. What is so important is not how many talents you have been given. What is important is the faithfulness with the talents that you have. That's why I emphasized you could look at this later, there is the exact same response to the first two individuals in the parable that Jesus crafted to teach us something. It doesn't matter whether you have been given two or five talents. If you are faithful, you hear, well done. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to increase your responsibility and you're going to share in my joy and my happiness. But when we are thinking fleshly and selfishly, when I think selfishly and fleshly, here's how I think. If this were a graph of performance regarding, say, discipleship, and how effective am I at the mission that Jesus has given to every Christian to make disciples? How effective am I? Am I a, a, a high performer, average performer, or low performer? Have I been given five or two or, or one? The way that I would want to think fleshly, like one of the people that comes to my, the, the main person that comes to my mind when I think of discipleship is no pastor or missionary. The most effective disciple maker I've known was a guy who was an attorney who led me and many other people to Christ. He lived in Houston at the time. He had this huge apartment he had empty rooms in his apartment, and when he saw people who had particular potential spiritually, he invited them to move in, and he had like a liturgical life, like a little church in his house, and he made disciples in his apartment in Houston. It wasn't a house. He was extraordinarily gifted in discipleship. So a wrong response 
to the parable of the talents is for me to go, well, I'm, I'm over here, and this guy's name's Scott. Scott's over here, and I'm not like Scott. That's a wrong response to the parable of talents. The right response to the parable of the talents and the right response to all of the seven eyes in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that God has sovereignly given us different talents and gifts. And God didn't make me Scott Brister. He made me who I am. So my reflection doesn't mean I don't need to change and grow, but my reflection is, God, who am I and how am I being faithful with everything that you've given me? But right now I'm focusing on the mission of making disciples. The most effective disciple maker I've encountered in my life was an attorney. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't a missionary. God wants you and me to be faithful with the gifts, with the talents that he's given us. And that faithfulness is correlative to the joy and happiness that we will share with our master. I hope that you are not feeling like shame or lowliness right now. I hope you're feeling freedom and that God wants you to be faithful He wants David to be faithful, and it just so happens that he doesn't need David to build him a house. That's not what he wants him to do, although that is a good thing. All right, let's come back to our text here, and I'll speed up the pace even more as we get to verse 11. So we see the seven eyes here in, um, we've just seen in verses um, 8 through 11. Now we're in the middle of verse 11. The Lord declares to you, this is still God speaking through Nathan to David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. Now this is crazy. So David wants to build a house for God, and God says, actually, I'm going to establish a house for you. (laughs) This is interesting. Verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your father's I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now I'm going to talk about this more in a moment, but what we're seeing here is that God wants to do exceedingly abundantly more than David would think. David thinks, I need to build a physical house for God. God is saying to David, I'm going to build a spiritual house, a lineage of a king who's going to rule forever and ever and ever, one of your descendants, a son of David. This is pretty awesome. You don't need to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. So we see here in these few verses that God's plans to use you or to use me are are sometimes exceed our vision. So God, help me to know that your plans to use me sometimes exceed my vision. This is a big circle around these verses. David can't see that there is a son of David that is coming from him, and this is the house that God is concerned with, not the physical house for the Ark of the Covenant right now. 
He's also referring to Solomon here and, and his son. So this is, this house, this spiritual house that God is going to build is what is referred to, this is a fancy church word or whatever, the Davidic covenant. That word is not in here. Davidic meaning simply David and covenant being what we read about in this chapter, especially in the next few verses. But we also read about it in Psalm 89. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever. There's going to be a descendant of David who's going to reign forever and build up your throne to all generations, literally. This is not hyperbole. This is true. And so, what God is saying to us in part, in verses 11 through 13, is would you dare to believe that God sometimes wants to do with you more than you might be asking him to do? Would you believe that today? Say yes, if you're with me. At least say, yes, I want to believe that God wants to use me even more than I might ask him to. That's what God is doing here with David and how the word of God is to read us rather than us just reading it. He wants to use you beyond what your vision is. Ephesians 3 tells us of this, but I've talked too much, so we don't have time to go there. So let's continue on and finish up verses 13 through 17. So back to the text. So I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the end of verse 13. Verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. That is picked up in the New Testament to refer to the father, God the father and God the son. But we have a jumping back and forth in this paragraph. Look at the next sentence. I'm in verse, what am I in? Verse 14. When he does wrong, so that obviously isn't referring to Jesus, the Son of God, who had no sin. So now we're talking about Solomon. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Verse 16. Now we're back to the son of David, who, if I haven't explicitly said it yet, is referring to Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. He is referred to in the gospel, Jesus, 17 times as the son of David, as the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 of the Davidic covenant. Your house spiritually, lineage, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. He repeats it in case you thought, okay, is that just hyperbole? Are you just exaggerating? No. You're going to have a son, many descendants away, who's going to reign forever. Verse 17, Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. God help me to know that your plans to use me sometimes exceed my vision. And the final point today, God help me to know that God's plan to make me and the world as it should be is certain. I want us to see how 
a thousand years before Jesus came, God has made a promise to David to build his house that you're going to have a greater son, a greater David. And that human, fully human, fully God, that son of David is going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to be raised on the third day. He's going to come again. We are still waiting for his return. And one day, he will make all things right. Church, I want to end on a note of hope today. I want to say to you that someday you will be strong and healthy forever because of what the Son of David has done. You will be strong in body. Those of you who have difficult nights and sorrow and depression and loneliness and anxiety, there is coming a day when you will have none of that, when you will be strong. Now, I want to say also that God is sufficient to grow you out of that now, but none of us are going to arrive completely until we are with him. So this is a both and, and I don't have any more time to talk about the now, but if I did, I would say God wants to change you now, but he also wants you to be longing for this new heavens and this new earth where the son of David is going to return and Satan and evil and cancer and depression and, and, and thoughts of suicide and the reality of suicide will, will, will not exist in the new heavens and the new earth. How about an amen? The, there, it is going to be beautiful. The world will be as it should be. And you will be as you ought to be. And it is because of the historical work of Jesus, the son of David, that covenant was made to King David in about 1000 BC. All of that should give us confidence to believe that this is not a fairy tale, that this is real. These are historical facts. David's life, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' coming again. These are historical realities. Most of those have happened. One is yet to happen. Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us in these ways. Lord, sometimes like David, we want to do good things, but there's something better for us to do. And sometimes you help us see your word through a friend, like Nathan, like Jonathan. Help us, God, to value friendships and to reveal to people who love you who we really are and what our struggles really are. Lord, help us to believe that you've given each of us talents and gifts. Some of us are, are struck with the disease of thinking we're, we're lame and that you haven't given us talents and gifts and others of us at times uh, are overestimate the gifts and talents that you've given us. 
Lord, give each of us a sober perspective on the gifts and talents you've given us and help us to be faithful with them. Help us not to covet someone who's been given more gifts. Help us not to look down on someone who's been given less gifts. Help us to be faithful with what you've given us. Lord, help us to believe that whatever the good vision we might have, a godly vision for our own lives, that you very likely want to use us more than that. And I don't know how that is. I'm praying that your spirit would be moving people right now in a particular direction or place. And I pray, God, finally, that we would be filled with hope that one day the world will be as it should be and each of us will be strong and healthy forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.